right, let me begin today with a heartfelt thank you to all those who put in extra work while I was gone this past week, uh, giving me the opportunity to go for some vacation, had the opportunity to get away, and of course, one of the best parts about that was I had the opportunity to celebrate my 25th wedding anniversary. It's actually my wife's 25th wedding anniversary as well, and it was, we had a great time, we really enjoyed, uh, we went to Myrtle Beach, which is a great place to go with the family and we brought my mom so that allowed us to go out for our anniversary so my mom could hang out with the kids which was really nice uh, there are several things we got to do while we were there and one of them included us going to um, uh, we the community we're in they they have golf everybody has a golf cart it seems like so at night usually from about 10 to 11 but it sometimes turns into more like 8 to 11 uh, individuals go out and they ride their golf carts. It's kind of like in a lot of the older small towns where people would go cruising at night, uh, and they would just kind of ride up and down this one stretch of road. And uh, I remember one night in particular, I had taken the kids, it was just me and Andrew and Alyssa and Michael, and as we're riding down this road very, very slowly, uh, there are golf carts coming this way, and then we're going this way, and this lady looks over at me, and she's kind of laughing. She says, we're the oldest two people out here. And I just kind of laughed for a second, and then I thought, what did she say to me? <laughs> the fact is, I definitely was much older than most of the people there. I will say, though, about three or four carts down after this lady had passed me, I look over, and this guy's like at least 70, and I'm thinking, I am not the oldest person out here. So uh, the reality is, though, um, we are who we are, and there are some things about us that maybe we don't like, and we're going to be talking a little bit about some of the monsters that are within us today. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the things that maybe we have allowed to exist within our lives, uh, and, and often those things can be very destructive, obviously. Um, if we do not allow Christ to become the Lord of our lives over every part of our lives, let me assure you that these things will become a problem for us. When you were a child, did you fear any particular monsters? You don't have to answer out, out loud, but you know what I, I mean by this. Maybe it was the monster under the bed. Maybe it was the monster in the closet. And when your parents came to tuck you in at night, you had them inspect the closet and look underneath the bed to make sure that everything was okay. Maybe you had watched one too many of those crazy monster movies about a swamp thing or the boogeyman or Bigfoot or Godzilla or whatever other image it was that came to your mind and it repeated itself in your nightmares after you went to bed. Well, those aren't the monsters that I want to talk about with you over the next several weeks. This is partially because those monsters are fictional. I know some of y'all think Bigfoot is real, and I'm not saying he's not. I'm just saying they haven't found him yet. So we're going to assume that those are all fictional. Looking back at those old movies today, we realize how cheesy and unrealistic they were in the first place, and perhaps we even wonder how they could have caused fear to people in the first place. Instead, I want to talk about some very real monsters in our lives. Some are internal, some are external. Although I would add that even the external monsters are created because of internal monsters. For example, I would be remiss today if I didn't at least mention the monster of racism. It's not something that is new to our nation or even to humanity. 
Racism has existed for centuries, even outside of the United States, with various moments where it seems to grow even stronger than before, and other times where we have fought more intently against it. We often see racism as an external problem. It is certainly creating unrest within our culture today. But the root of this external problem is an internal problem. And this internal problem can take many different forms. It may include pride, bitterness, selfishness, fear. I'm going to take it a step further. It's simply called sin. The problem of racism is derived out of a sin problem. It all begins with the sin that exists within our own hearts. Know that our denomination, the Wesleyan Church, has a history of standing against such injustice. And know that our church cannot just ignore the mistreatment of other people. We believe that all people were created equal. We believe that all people were created in the image of an almighty God. And we believe that God's love is equal for everyone. I will add that injustice that occurred, the injustice that occurred toward George Floyd should pierce our hearts, not because he was a black man, but because he was God's creation. It should pierce our hearts that a young black lady just graduated from high school this past week and was shot and killed on Thursday night in Anderson. It should pierce our hearts that seven officers have been killed since the rioting began just over a week ago. It should pierce our hearts that countless people have been irreparably harmed by the recent acts of violence, while many others live in constant fear and a sense of defeat. Listen to me, the monsters are real, but we do not have to be defeated by the monsters. I do caution each of you with this, as my document just disappeared on me. I do caution each of you with this. Be careful how you respond to others during moments of crisis like we've seen in recent days. It is far less important for me to communicate my opinion on current issues and circumstances as opposed to me communicating God's word and how that speaks to our current circumstances. And I'm not talking about trying to twist the scriptures to say something that it does not. I'm talking about the fact that none of this is new. The junk that we experience, the things that are going on in our world, they've been going on for a long time. God's word addresses such brokenness already. For example, I shared this week a reminder of our church's theme verse in Micah 6.8 which says, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. How different would our world look if we simply took that one verse of Scripture seriously? This would no doubt impact people on every side of the brokenness which I just described to you earlier. Let this be a time to reflect on what that verse and its application in your own life should look like. 
while also leading you to pray for God's word to come alive in other people. I want to get back to our internal monsters for a moment. These are monsters that exist within our own lives and sometimes, regrettably, even within the church. Over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at several of those monsters, and our primary text will come from 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you want to turn real quick, you can look at it. We're going to read the first five verses, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And we're going to read the entire five verses right now, but I'm going to tell you already we're just looking at verses 1 and 5 today. So uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 says this, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Now, there are so many monsters listed in this passage that I don't even know that I would be able to cover all of these monsters even over a three-week period of time. Someone asked me on Friday night if I thought we were living in the last days. And it's interesting because this passage actually begins with in the last days. It actually started out by saying there will be terrible times in the last days. Well, they asked if I thought we were living in these last days. And my answer was simple. The world that is described in 2 Timothy is very, very similar to the world in which we live today. If the Lord is coming back today, he has already given us the warning signs. What he has described is already there. The things that we see foretold of what will take place in the last days, they are taking place all around. I don't know when he will come back, but it shouldn't catch anyone by surprise because we see the things happening. We're not trying to cover everything in one week. I want to focus on the crux of what is being said by looking just at the first and the last verse here. Take out all the ugly descriptive terms in the middle and just look at the beginning and the end. It says this, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be, and I'm going to skip down to verse 5, people will be having a form of godliness but denying its power. Today's monster that I want to look at is mediocrity. It is being content with average, being like everyone else, taking on a form of godliness, but not truly embracing the power that God has made available to us. Let me begin by saying that I don't think that Paul is talking about those outside the church here. It is possible that we could describe those outside the church in this way, especially as we live in a spiritual world. Everyone is spiritual today. Everyone is quick to use a verse or two of scripture to accomplish their purpose. This week, even as we've watched politics, I've seen 
Both presidential candidates hold the Bible up or share verses. I've seen politicians left and right who have tried to use the Scripture to their advantage. Unfortunately, it seems as though all of us are familiar with the Scriptures when it's convenient to us, but not so quick to apply it to their own lives. The Bible says, judge not, so don't judge me. Hey, the Bible says, love your neighbor. And I don't disagree with either of those statements because the Bible does say both of those things. But I will say that they are typically taken out of context. And it's amazing how everybody knows the verses they want to know. We all become biblical scholars on that one particular issue. And what really happens is everyone takes on a form of godliness, but deny the power of God in their own lives. So yes, this can apply to those outside the church. But that's a different monster. I want to talk about the monster within. You see, the unfortunate reality is that this verse seems more likely pointed to the local church rather than those outside the church. Let me explain. I read an article this past week, when you have vacation time, you have time to read. I read an article this past week regarding the lead singer of a band called Hawk Nelson. They're a popular Christian band. Some of you are familiar with the song Drops in the Ocean. He's the artist who does that particular song. After being raised in a pastor's household and serving in the Christian music industry for many years, he has now come to the conclusion that there is no God. Although there are many other factors that likely were left out of the article, his story does bring up some issues for the church as a whole. Add to this the relatively recent decision by author Joshua Harris, who wrote the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, to also walk away from his faith. And it makes me wonder if maybe something isn't right within the church. What if we've taken on the appearance of godliness, but we are denying the power of God? It would be difficult to blame only one factor as to why such things are happening in the church. In fact, it is more likely that there are multiple issues that are in play here. And I want to look at three particular things that we as the body of Christ need to experience if we are to truly be the light of Christ to those around us, to know that he is real and in many ways to make sure that the church is what we're supposed to be. The first is the need for intentional discipleship. We're not called to make bigger churches or to simply make believers. We are called to make disciples. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20, we are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Later in the service today, I'll have the privilege of baptizing a friend of mine. We're actually going to baptize two individuals in the service today. But one of them is an individual that he's a friend of mine. And I want you to know that I'm not merely baptizing him as a believer, but as a disciple in Jesus Christ. We have spent the last four months plus going through a discipleship plan, helping him to apply the word of God to his life. And it has been an incredible blessing to him his family, and even to me. 
God didn't redeem him for a one-time decision. He redeemed him for a life of transformation. I believe today that most pastors know this and truly want to accomplish this, making disciples, but few know how. I'm not going to tell you that one particular method of discipleship is better than others, but I'm going to tell you that all of us need to be involved in discipleship. All of us should be sharing with somebody. You say, well, pastor, I'm not really good with all that. I'm not really as smart as, say, a pastor or a Sunday school teacher. I mean, there are other people. They've been Christians much longer than I have, so I don't know that I'm really the one to do discipleship with somebody else. All right, so do it this way. Find someone to disciple you so that you can actually have someone walk you through it, and then you imitate what you've experienced already. You say, well, I don't know if I know anybody who's really all that good. At i got another great idea for you. Find somebody that you respect and you love. They can be further along in their walk with Christ, or they can be well behind you in their walk with Christ. And simply ask them to walk through a book of Scripture with you. Get together once a week and just allow the Word to begin to speak to your lives and then talk about it together as brothers and sisters in Christ. What will happen is you will find that it benefits both of you along the way. You can tell them it's all about helping yourself, but the truth is it will help them too. It will help both of you. The thing is, discipleship is something that all of us should be involved with. If you are a part of the body of Christ, you need to be receiving discipleship. You need to be giving discipleship. You know, in the situations that I just mentioned a few moments ago, I wonder if true discipleship had ever truly taken place. Or do people just assume that These folks are good. You know, they've been raised in a pastor's home. They can articulate themselves very well. They're gifted and they have great abilities. And we just, man, they are so spiritually mature. I believe that God longs for disciples who will make disciples who will make a difference. That is what the scriptures tell us. Will you allow that to be you? The second issue, and perhaps even bigger than the first, is that people often do not believe in God because they have not genuinely experienced him firsthand. They heard somebody else's story, but they themselves have not experienced the power of God. Think about it. If they had personally experienced him, they would know that he was real. Okay, so I look at Tim here, and I can guarantee you that Tim is real because I have personally experienced him. I went on a trip with him to Costa Rica. I listened to him. We sat in a car. I know Tim. I know that he's real. You can argue. You can tell, I, I don't even believe in this guy named Tim. I think he's just a made-up thing. I, I can tell you, I've seen him. I've experienced him myself. Well, the same thing is true with God. We've been to camps, and we've been to great church services with amazing sermons that have made everyone want to live good lives. But do we still see the power of God at work in our midst? I'm talking about the power of God to miraculously transform lives. To take an individual enslaved by addiction and set them free. 
to take a marriage that is destined for divorce and bring restoration or to powerfully heal those who are broken, whether it be emotional brokenness or physical brokenness. Let me assure you today that the power of God is very much real. Last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday, a time to remember when the power of God was poured out, changing the lives of people, changing a world forever. God moved miraculously in that moment, and people knew that he was real because they had experienced it themselves. Well, if God could do that 2,000 years ago, I assure you, he can do it again today. I fear that the church is rarely known for the power of God anymore. Instead, we are known as a political voting block. We are social justice warriors, selectively choosing which issues to speak out on while remaining silent on others that are just as unbiblical. And we are seen as hypocrites, whitewashed cups, clean on the outside, but filthy with sin on the inside. We've become a business driven by numbers. And I hate to admit it because I'm a pastor. Driven by numbers. How many people showed up to church this Sunday? How much money was given in the offering plate? As long as we put out a quality product each weekend, then our business will keep growing. Stop for a moment right here. If you hear nothing else that I say this morning, I want you to hear this. The same powerful God who showed up on Pentecost Sunday, who healed the sick, who raised the dead, who restored sight, restored hope and dignity, the same God who promised his followers that they would do even greater things after his death, he is still all-powerful and almighty. He is still changing lives. And he is still delivering them from captivity. He is real. And nothing can ever change that. If we are taking on a form of godliness, but we are denying its power, we are not truly giving a representation of who Christ is. See that image of taking on a form of something. I can put on a mask and I can look like a different person. You guys know it's, it's fake. All right, uh, how many of you guys, I know everybody in here knows who Superman is. How many of you know who his alter ego is, who his other personality is? He is Clark Kent. He's got the weakest disguise ever. He puts on his glasses and that's it. And somehow those glasses are so good that nobody can make the distinction, hey, that's Superman. No, that's the guy with the glasses. That's Clark Kent. I think some of us have been putting on the glasses, trying to look like God, but we have not truly experienced the power of God to transform our lives. The problem is not merely people from other denominations either. You see, sometimes we look around and we think, well, that's not us. That's everybody else. The problem exists within the Wesleyan Church. Last week, while walking on the beach with my kids, we found a bunch of little tiny fish dried up and sitting at the water's edge. As we look more closely, we realize 
that with every single wave, there were these tiny fish that were thriving in the shallow water of the seashore. It probably seemed safe from all the other predators that were out there in the ocean. Problem was that sometimes they would swim too close to the edge of the water. And as the wave quickly receded, they found themselves trapped on dry ground. The applications of this are many. I worry that the church has forfeited the deep waters of our faith, settling for a shallow faith that no longer calls us to holy living. I worry that we've tried to get so close to the edge becoming like everybody else, that we have sacrificed the things that have made us unique. We are a holiness church with a holiness message. We cannot afford to lose that. I wonder what would happen if the church as a whole began to once again focus on these things, discipleship, the power of God, and the call to holiness. What if we once again saw the church as God's tool for revealing the power of an almighty Christ? What if we became transparent enough to admit that we are responsible for the direction that we have gone as a church? Jesus tells the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2.5 to consider the height from which they have fallen. He then instructs them to repent, which includes confession and action, choosing to walk in a different way, and do the things that you did at first. And if you do, you will experience that all over again. Sounds easy enough to me. Where we have compromised, where we have allowed things to become less than real, it is time for us to get back to where we started. What if in doing so, we began to experience the transformative power of God that would cause others to long for what we have. It's not about us preaching at everybody else and telling them all the things that they're doing wrong, but it's about us being transformed so that they look at our lives and they say, whatever he has, I want it. Because the power of God is just as real today as it was before. And what if that very same power is what equipped us to truly become world changers? What would happen if the church began to focus more on discipleship rather than attendance and offering? What if instead of talking about discipleship, we just started doing it? My guess is that the church wouldn't worry about those numbers because God would provide for all those needs. What if we began to fix our eyes once again on the holiness of Christ? Then looking at everything else through that lens this would change our perspective on everything else that we see. My prayer is that that would happen in this church. It would happen in our denomination. It would happen within our community. It would happen within our nation. But I pray first that it would happen in me. I want to challenge you today, and then we're going to go to baptism. And it's an incredible, I love the privilege of baptizing individuals. And you have no idea how excited and honored I am to be able to do this today. I'm going to ask, uh, I know you need to go get ready for baptism, so if you want to go get ready. And then, Chris, when you come back in, if you want to come on this side over here, that would be great. Um, 
I want to challenge each of you while he is out getting ready. I want to challenge you, first of all, as we've talked about what the church needs. First of all, to commit to personal prayer and discipleship yourself. Again, maybe you need to go ask someone else to disciple you. I love the privilege of pouring into other people. I told you with Chris, I have spent so much time working with Chris and Renee, and I love it. It has benefited me as much as it has them, and I really do mean that. Maybe you need to find someone, and it's for their benefit, so they will benefit from it. Maybe you need to go to them, and you say, I want to be able to disciple you. Maybe you go to them and say, I want you to disciple me. And they're going to tell you, well, I don't know if I can do that. And you're going to say, well, that's okay. Let's just do it together. I'm going to ask you as a church to commit to discipleship. and Pour into someone else and let someone else pour into you. Back to that passage in Revelation chapter 3. Consider the height from which you have fallen. Remember when you had that hunger, that excitement, that thirst for Christ, and you wanted so much to please Him above everything else? Go back to that again. How do you do that? You get back to God's Word and allowing His Word to be central in your life. As God was real to you then, may He show Himself to be real again. Don't let the monster of mediocrity, being like everybody else, defeat you. You the body of Christ, were made for greatness. God intended for you to change the world. But you can't do it if you just take on a form of godliness. It is the power of God to change lives working in you that will change the world. I'm asking everyone to bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you, we thank you for your grace we thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for the hope that we all have in knowing that we have more than enough in you. Father, I pray for each one today that you would help us to truly experience the reality of Christ, the power of Christ. I pray that you would fill each one of us today with your spirit. Give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Help us to never be satisfied with being just a form of godliness. But I pray that the power of God would flow through us and that we would be the world changers you intended us to be. Father, I pray today for those who are about to be baptized and pray that you would be honored in their lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now we're going to do two baptisms here, but we're going to do them in two different ways. Um, the first one is going to be someone that you know already, uh, that has been a part of the church since actually even before I was in college. And uh, you have no idea the honor that it is for me to participate in this today. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to have uh, Mr. Thomas come up, and he is going to be baptized today. And I will tell you this, the act of baptism is a symbolic act in many ways. Uh, it is an opportunity for us to be able to celebrate the work that has been done, but the truth is baptism doesn't save a single individual. Baptism, instead, is a celebration of the work that God has already done in us. When an individual repents of their sins, when they surrender their lives to Christ, they are immediately a child of God. They are already a part of the family of God. They are cleansed. Their sins are washed away. 
and we celebrate that. The act of baptism does not save anyone. The act of confession and repentance, that is where surrender takes place and the cleansing of God occurs. But in baptism, what we do is we get a symbolic look of the cleansing that God did. It's as if you're going into the water as one who is filthy with sin. And then when you come out, it's as if the sin is completely washed away. You've been made brand new. Now, I will tell you that the Bible tells us very clearly that there is great rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents of his sins. I know that when I gave my heart to Christ... I didn't hear any rejoicing. I didn't hear the angels celebrating and shouting, but I believe they did. So I'm going to ask you today, as we baptize, if you would give these two individuals a glimpse of what it must have been like in heaven the day that they surrendered their lives to Christ. In one case, we're going to pour water over Mr. Thomas. In another, we're going to dunk Chris in the water. This is what I'm asking you to do. When we pour the water over Mr. Thomas, I'm going to ask you to celebrate more than you ever have for a Clemson football game, more than you ever have for a Carolina Panthers game. I don't, whatever team you like, I want you to celebrate today more than you ever have before because I will guarantee you this is far greater than anything that you've ever celebrated before. This is a life that was destined for hell. And now they have been redeemed, and they are in Christ. They have the promise of eternal life. So as we celebrate this today, you are active participants in this. I do ask you one other favor. As these individuals confess to a relationship with Christ, and as these individuals even remember back to a moment when they surrendered their lives to Christ, let this be a time for you to remember back as well. Maybe you're very much like the church at Ephesus that I talked about in Revelation. Maybe you remember what that was like and you were so excited and you were eager to do whatever God called you to do and you wanted to make sure that you lived for God with everything. Let me challenge you today that if that hunger for Christ has wavered, it is time for you to consider the height from which you have fallen. It is time to repent and to go and do the things that you did at first. Let this be a time of renewal even for you.